They call it Prescott, not Prescott. It never gets too cold, it never gets too hot. It's got the trappings of a city, but feels more like a town. And everywhere you look, oh, there's mountains all around. Old oh, Prescott, yeah, Prescott. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Four Corners Primecast. My name is Jake. My name is Roy. And I'm your host, Katie. And today we are talking about the New Mexico State Penitentiary Riot. And uh, where did you get most of your research from on this one, Katie? This one was the book The Hate Factory by G. Herleman. And it's a firsthand account by an inmate going by the alias W.G. Stone. And he was actually in the prison at the time of the riot. And also the BBC documentary, which was just Penitentiary New Mexico. Is it White Guy Stone? I highly doubt it. So, this is obviously in New Mexico. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was going to be my next point, too, but I decided to go with the Willie G thing. Good. Good choice. Um, so, <laughs> why don't you go ahead and uh, start us off, Katie? Okay. So, there's also another book called The Devil's Butcher Shop by Roger Morris, which is really good for information if anyone wants to read more about this, because he goes into more of the causes and the the after, the post-riot world, basically, of New Mexico. So I couldn't get it in time for this. We're on a pretty strict time schedule over here at the Four Corners Cramcast. The New Mexico State Penitentiary was commissioned to be built in April 1956 after uprisings, overcrowding, and filthy conditions forced the original state penitentiary that had been standing since 1885 to be closed. New prison was given a massive budget, somewhere around $8 million, and meant to be one of the most state-of-the-art prisons of that time. The prison is, of course, separated into cell blocks, but what was most unique was the use of dormitories. Rather than confine inmates to one or two men per cell, those who were deemed low-risk were kept in large, locked-down rooms, with community bathrooms and day rooms to be used as the inmates pleased. So it was like minimum security on half of it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the south end was the dormitories, the north end was the cell blocks. So it was just a bunch of bunks and they could just do, basically, they just live their lives out? Mm -hmm. They didn't have to go ask someone to pee or go in and watch movies? I don't think in a cell you have to ask someone to use the bathroom in your your cell either. Oh yeah, I guess that's true. Well, you know, I've never... But it's like, picture Orange is the New Black. You know how all the women are kept in the... And there's like the walls and stuff separating their beds and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, it's just like Pima County. Mm-hmm. Super basic. Been to jail, so... It's like camp. It's a real real good setting for a riot. The cell blocks were the only caged areas, as they were used for risky inmates. Cell block four, which I will mention the most, was a segregation unit. The inmates kept there were almost all prison informants, meaning their lives were in danger every moment they were not locked up. So they were the people that were basically extra protection for them so that they didn't get murdered for what they knew? More like uh, segregated housing, like the shoe, where they keep them separate from everyone. You're yeah, you're in a cell by yourself because you snitched, and you're going to get killed because you snitched. Because snitches get stitches. Snitches get dead. We don't stitch them. No. In the downstairs basement portion of cell block four was what inmates referred to as the hole, or sem- sensory deprivation cells. These cells were reserved for the most brutal punishment, as they were pitch black with no ventilation. Inmates were tossed inside naked, given only a small cup, then blanket, and mattress from 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. Toilet was nothing more than a hole in the middle of the cell, which guards flushed intermittently depending on how they felt about the inmates inside the cells. So if you were an asshole inmate, or the guard was an asshole guard. Yeah, either way. I mean, six of one, half a dozen of another sometimes. Some complained that guards would leave the toilets unflushed for days at a time, asking the inmates how it smelled when they passed by. The fuck? That's pretty... That's like, I wouldn't even do that to my dog. 
Yeah, they don't even do that do to that dogs. To dog. They don't like you clean out a dog's pen like when at the Humane Society or whatever, you know, the cages they're in, they keep them clean. Yeah. There's just like a hole in the ground that they had to flush. Like inmates couldn't even. No, inmates couldn't flush. The guards had to do it from the outside. <sighs> That's disgusting. Guards were also in control of turning on the water for the inmates and would never give warning. If you were unable to get to the spout in time and drink as much as possible in the two minutes you were given two or three times a day, you were shit out of luck. Sandwiches were fed to the inmates inside every three days with six slices of bread to hold inmates over for the two days in between. Holy shit, this is awful. I'm not even sure how this is, like... Legal? Legal, yeah. How? I guess the prison systems come a decent ways. This was before the um, the Duran consent. This was when prisons could basically do whatever they want with no federal oversight. I mean, Crazy. the two to three times a day on the water thing is just... I mean, the food is insane, too. But imagine just being like, nah, you just can't have water. Why? Why? Teach him a lesson. The hole wasn't the only part of the prison that was filthy. Many inmates complained of roaches and mice, as well as being fed moldy meat consistently. That didn't stop inmates from using whatever fruit they could get their hands on to make prison wine. Along with alcohol, drugs ran rampant, either smuggled in by visitors or the guards themselves. When the guards weren't assisting with drug trafficking, they were busy beating inmates. So they hated them enough to not give them food and water, but they trafficked the drugs through there for them? They hated the inmates, they loved money. If you're buying drugs in prison, you're using real money. It's not like you're trading commissary. So they're still making legitimate real money off of the drugs that they smuggle in. Sounds like a hellhole. Many complained of being beat for absolutely no reason, hit with billy clubs, and kicked until the group of four or five corrections officers were done. Once they were beat, they would be thrown in the hole. So you got beat and you got thrown in the hole just because... Yeah, there was one story in the book about a guy that dropped something while he was in the commissary line... And he bent down to pick it up and, like, stepped out of formation, and they beat him. Didn't let him have commissary for, like, a month. It's just like summer camp. Guards didn't just use their hands to beat the inmates. They also used the inmates against each other, inciting intense violence. Anytime a newcomer arrived, they would be coerced, usually by beatings, into becoming an informant. Guards did not care if the information they received was legitimate. It all was taken as sworn truth. Should an inmate refuse to snitch, they would be made to wear the snitch jacket, outing them to other inmates, leading to beatings. So if you weren't a snitch, you had to wear the snitch jacket and you get your ass beat. Mm -hmm. It seems like it's so easy when you're like obviously controlling all these people, but then you're also controlling their drugs and their food and their water and everything, and you just pit them against each other. It's just like insanity. Once an inmate snitched, even for the smallest thing, they would be thrown into cell block floor, again outing themselves as informants. So no matter what, they were basically outed as informants. Like mm-hmm. Whether or not they actually wanted to be an informant, they were put in the snitch jacket until they became an informant so they could get moved over to the safer Or they would block. get the shit beat out of them until they said something that seemed like they were snitching, even if it wasn't true, and they got put in cell block floor. Okay. It sounds more like a game than an actual like prison or anything. Guards didn't struggle to find new meat to beat into submission, as recent crackdowns were sending hundreds of petty criminals to prison. By 1978, there were 1,272 inmates in a prison meant to hold around 900. The dormitories were so full that men were sleeping on floors as all the bunk beds were taken. Silence was not an option, as dozens of radios at full volume played 24-7. Men fought over being stepped on, and the chattering was nonstop. This sounds terrible. This sounds like my worst nightmare, is being stuck in one of these places basically that's how it was for all 1200 of these people we're gonna skip over the new meat to beat part violent high-risk inmates were housed in cell block three and five by 1978 as much as 25 percent of the inmate population was being held in cell block three which equated to over 200 men in a block mental hold 86 
So this is a brand new prison, though, at this time, basically, or newish. Newish, yeah. With all the modern accommodations, and they're still overcrowding and stuffing people into this place. Yeah, they had nowhere else to send them. I mean, all the other prisons were equally full. They just were sending everyone to prison. Can you imagine if you built a prison like, you know, in the 50s and then because between the 50s and 2000 and whatever, the amount of technological advance, like when you built this, you're like, this is the height of, of everything. Oh, but yeah. then like in 10 years, it was obsolete. And now 30, 50 years later, it's useless. I mean, that's how most prisons are in America is that at one point in time, they were like the height of security and, you know, comfort for inmates or whatever they thought it was. And now 20 years later, because the private prison industry has come around and made their own prisons where they're making just gobs of money off of housing people. You know, it's a little different story when you're like a federal prison based against a privatized federal prison. Oh, I just mean like it, like from imagine like 1776 to 1956. There was probably not that much innovation in locks and chains and bars. I mean, there was probably a then, lot, actually. Not compared to 1956 to 2019. I mean, <laughs> at one point in time, they automated the locks so that they could crink open all the doors. That's pretty innovative. Was it controlled by a computer? Probably by some and one sort dude of up at the pen. front with a little doot, 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 and we let everybody out. No, I guess not. Along with the overcrowding came the removal of the education and work programs, meaning the inmates had nothing but idle time. Those in protection or segregation units were limited to one hour a day outside of their cells. Most at risk were given no time outside their cells. The overall conditions of the prison had already caused three riots, numerous deaths and beatings, and many escapes. The last straw was when cell block 5, housing high-risk inmates, was chosen to be renovated. All the inmates that were housed there were moved not to different cells, but into dormitory E2, where they had free run and were able to easily communicate with other prisoners. Now, what designated these people as high-risk inmates? Does that mean that they were trying to escape? Were they trying to hurt other inmates? Uh, most of them were gang leaders. Ah. So they were like the ones that would start riots. Telling others to shiv them. They took the people that might start a riot and put them with a bunch of people that could. So they basically created their own powder keg in yeah. that situation by having one shitty conditions, two beaten people, and three now overcrowding people with their gang leaders. Into a minimum security area of the prison in the first place, right? They were all able to, this was one of the areas where they could all mingle pretty much. Yeah, it was a dormitory. <laughs> basically, no one wanted to be a CO back then. I don't think anyone really does anymore still, but there was 12 corrections officers on February 1st to oversee all 1,200 people. Wow. No, that's 12 corrections 12. officers for 1,200 people? Yeah. These people, like some of these co uh, corrections officers were kind of jerks. I mean, I don't want to like say something bad about them in case they, you know, something bad happens to them. But at this point, they were treating these people like caged animals, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, they were assholes. Okay. All of these circumstances mixed with the general hatred of the man to create the events of February 1st, 2nd, and 3rd, 1980. Guards were required to take headcounts, with the final one being around 1.30am, but because the dormitories were so dangerous and packed, they hardly ever went more than a few feet inside. The weeks leading up to February had been the worst in the prison's history, and the tension between inmates and guards was only getting worse by the day. There had been talks of something happening, and soon, but no one was sure exactly what to do. That was until the night of February 1st. As a group of men sat and drank their homemade liquor, a plan was hatched. When the guards came to do their final headcounts, they would jump them, escaping out the door that was never locked behind the guards. If you're ever about to hatch a plan, and the start of this plan was Pruno, you should probably just ditch the plan. Just abandon the plan, wait till the next day, come up with a new plan. I don't know, this one sounded pretty foolproof. I don't think you can get a better plan than that out of some of these guys. You might have a point. Yeah, it worked pretty well in their case. Pruno plans are good. 
They did just that, grabbing the guards one by one and dragging them into the day room. They were forced to strip naked so inmates could disguise themselves in uniforms, blindfolded, tied up, and brutally beaten. Once they were finished, the riot officially began. Because inmates now had keys to a good portion of the prison, they were able to get past any locked riot gates, which weren't many because guards never closed or locked them. What's a riot gate, Katie? Um, so it's basically the gates or the grills that block off different parts of the prison from each other. So, like, you know how to get into a cell block, you would have to go through bars to get into that way. So that way, if that cell block were to riot, they couldn't get to the rest of the prison. Okay. It's like metal screens at the malls, I think, that drop down. Except for bars and, like, a portcullis on a castle, basically. They stumbled across four more corrections officers and took them hostage, providing beatings just as brutal as the other four had already gotten. One guard was actually able to get away and was hidden by another inmate through the entire riot. So this inmate saved his ass. Basically. Huh. Three of those seven guards that were taken hostage were not only known to beat inmates, but they were known to rape them too. Those three men were held down while dozens of inmates took turn raping them. Once they were finished, they switched to using two-foot billy clubs to sodomize them. The rioters knew that their hostages would be valuable in negotiations later, so they were careful not to kill them, only cause them as much pain as possible. Fuck, that's disturbing. I'm surprised you don't just die from that. It gets so much worse. They then made their way to the control booth, which had been recently upgraded with new glass, said to be bulletproof. One guard was able to get to the booth just in time to rescue the three officers inside the tiny room. Shortly after they escaped, a fire extinguisher was thrown straight through the glass windows. Inmates now had access to all but two keys to the prison, along with tear gas guns, gas masks, and batons. They moved next to the offices, destroying everything before lighting every record on fire in an attempt to exonerate themselves. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I love it. They had a little crew, like, you guys go take care of the records, no one will ever know we did this. Yeah, right. We weren't here. Hardly anything was computerized back then, so... But they also destroyed their parole, so, like... (laughs) Half of them were supposed to get out in like two months and no one knew that. And so they had to be stuck in prison for another year. Can you imagine how much paper that was that they burned? Probably a ton. Holy shit. It burned so big it went straight through the roof of the prison. It's like a super jail episode. At the same time, the prison infirmary was raided, giving rioters access to any drug they desired. For whatever reason, the company that supplied the prison forced them to buy in bulk, and guards never gave out prescribed medicine to those that needed it. There were so many pills of every sort that inmates filled shoeboxes full and carried them around the prison, offering them to anyone they passed. <laughs> God damn. <laughs> it's just like carrying around their little shoebox, and it's just like a grab bag. Like, here, have some, have some, have some. We're gonna have fun tonight. That's how they talk in prison. That sounds about right. The first place rioters went was the hole. Because they could not see inside, they went door to door asking who was locked in each cell. Archie Martinez, one of the biggest snitches in the prison, was one of those men in the hole. He was able to shove a toothbrush into the doors, locked to prevent inmates from getting to him. Juan Sanchez was not so lucky. He had been tortured by inmates and guards alike since his arrival at the prison for being a paranoid schizophrenic. He had started a few fights, but most inmates disliked him because of his constant rambling. When his cell door was opened, he was blinded from the light pouring into his pitch black cell. He most likely had no idea that a tear gas gun was pointed straight at his head. It was fired from such a close range that his head essentially exploded on impact. Jesus. Because the tear gas shoots like an actual canister, right? Mm -hmm. So he basically just got domed with a canister? Projectile canister? Basically, yeah, really close range, probably like two or three feet away from him. God damn. 
Now, rioters had their sights set on cell block 3, where their gang leaders were held. There were three major gangs in the prison, the Aryan Brotherhood, the Chicanos, and the Black Muslims. For the most part, during the entire riot, the gangs either worked together or simply stayed out of each other's way. Because it was sparked by such poor conditions at the prison, the men felt unified rather than the need to fight against each other. I feel like it's like a purge type thing, like in the purge, nobody fucks with other purgers. Basically, yeah. They were able to drag badly beaten Captain Roybal, one of the first men taken hostage, by a makeshift leash through the prison to unlock any grills locked by control panels. Not long after the riot started, all 86 of the most dangerous men in the prison were released from cell block 3. That seems like the scariest part, because when it's just a bunch of gang members rioting, and like you said, they're not fucking with each other, they're just doing their own thing or whatever, obviously that's bad, but not as bad as when their leaders all come out and like unionize them and fucking yeah, like... And like they're like, now is the time that we have to do these things that need doing. Yeah, like we can kill everybody else and then we'll own this place. Who's going to come in and take it from us? Right. Weapons were already being created out of pipes ripped from the floors or walls or broken tables and chairs, but more were needed. The newly freed leaders took their men to the kitchen, where the knives were kept and armed themselves. By now, what's referred to as the execution squad was forming. These 14 men would commit the most depraved acts of the entire riot. We haven't got to the most depraved acts of the riot yet. Yeah, Jesus. No, it gets much, much worse. And were these uh, 14 executioner uh, squad or whatever they were, are, do we know what gang they're from or what... It was kind of a mix, but I think it was mostly the Aryans. Okay. Oh, yeah. Sounds like an Aryan thing. Yeah, that makes sense. They started when they were leaving the kitchen and bumped into a one-armed man who had refused to join the Aryan Brotherhood previously. He was cornered, pushed up against a wall, and had a meat cleaver brought down into the top of his head. When he fell to the ground, two men held him down while others attempted to cut his remaining arm off, an order from their leader who claimed he had always wanted to rape a man with no arms. Well, that says all kinds of weird things about their leader. Yeah. I mean, you're following that guy. <laughs> yeah. Everyone should have just stopped so and looked at him and been like, yeah, hey, uh, inside thoughts, man. Keep those yeah, inside. <laughs> yeah. Don't, don't let those out. <laughs> no, don't tell us why we're doing this. No. I think it was more of like a, a threat thing because if you have one arm and he's like, oh, I always wanted to rape a guy with no arms. Yeah, I guess. Still. And the guy with one arm was like, <laughs> the guy with one arm cut was my still other arm off. Away. Yeah, he's just sitting there like, good thing I have one arm. (laughs) (laughs) Somehow he was able to wrestle his way out from under the men and ran to safety. He did end up keeping his arm, but it was permanently damaged. Probably about half as damaged as the rest of his brain is. Like After they brought the meat cleaver down on it? One, they brought a meat cleaver down on it. Two, he was just threatened with no armed rape by a big Aryan brother, right? Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, he's probably got a little bit of a... Warpage happening, but I'm just glad that he still has his arm. I was just imagining when you said he got away, like just a no armed man slipping out from under him, wrestling his way out. <laughs> Slips like I don't know why you're laughing at that. That's incredibly frightening. Yeah, I think they got about halfway through and down to a bunch of tendon before he was able to get away. Wow, clearly they weren't prepared for what they were about to do. You don't prepare for something like that? You have to know that there's going to be something hard to cut through down in there. They then found their way to the shoe and plumbing shops, where some of the inmates used to work. There they found glue, which was immediately huffed. Mixing with the tranquilizers and opiates already in their systems, the glue only fueled their rage. In the plumbing shop, they found the most dangerous item possible, an acetylene torch. The BBC documentary reported the torch was found in cell block 5, left out by the workers during renovations on the area. Either way, it was drug upstairs and used to cut through any cell bars that there 
wasn't in Key 2. The men in the education unit in Dormitory D were freed, leaving only 96 inmates in cell block 4 locked up. Roughly a thousand inmates were roaming the prison, destroying everything in their paths, starting fires, and flooding the floor. Did they have a game plan for when, when they burned the prison down, what they were going to do next? Yeah, well, like, I, I'm not sure what the... The whole plan is here. They're just sort of They're just destroying it. Destroy the prison. Their plan wasn't to burn it down. They were just burning the records, and then uh-huh. they would light fires and be like, "Okay, let's go somewhere else." They just <laughs> get distracted. This area is cached, boys. I mean, what does one thousand people milling around in an enclosed space look like? That's the five percent of an NBA game. Yeah, but it's probably a smaller area or more enclosed area. It's not this giant stadium. And everything's on fire. Everyone has weapons. Everyone's fucked up on drugs. Smoke. There had to be a lot of smoke. Some inmates chose not to partake in the riot, like the men in E1. This is what I was literally just going to say, is that I would have probably been like, I'm not, no, I'm just going to go over here, away from the smoke and the fire. And That's the thing, though, is you participate in the riot or you die. Yeah. I I might go outside and, like, sit down. If someone caught you not participating, you would either get the shit beat out of you or they would kill you. They were in a special unit for younger, weaker inmates who were unable to protect themselves. They managed to barricade their door and prevented the group of gangs outside from getting to them. One man, Joe Madrid, knew someone inside E1 and provided him a wrench to break the windows to get out of the prison completely. For his betrayal, Joe was beaten to death with pipes, rolling pins, and any other weapons the men had acquired. His body was drugged to the gymnasium, tied up, and hung from a basketball hoop. Throughout the riot, other inmates would find him and hack into his body with knives or beat him with pipes, leaving him completely disfigured when he was finally found. He was serving one to five years for drug possession. Jesus fucking Christ. And he all he did was literally help people that were about to get rape murdered. Mm-hmm. Damn. Yeah, he just helped them get out of the prison, which was even worse than not partaking in the riot. Armed with the acetylene torch, rioters made their way back to the hole for Archie Martinez, king of the snitches. He was forced to sit in the dark and watch his cell door be burned off its hinges, knowing exactly what was coming when the rioters were inside. Once they had their hands on him, Archie was drug upstairs and handcuffed Spread Eagle to the guard station. He was brutally beaten until he finally passed out, but one inmate went and got smelling salts from the infirmary to wake him. Once awake, the rioters used razor blades to cut his eyelids before gouging his eyes out, leaving them hanging from the socket. He was awoken with the smelling salts again, and his optic nerves were cut. The salts were used again to keep him awake while his penis was cut off and shoved into his mouth. Their final act of torture was to take the acetylene torch to every part of his body until he finally died. Holy fuck. Like, where? These aren't really people. I mean, like, is there really a, like, a spot for them in the world after they've done something like this? I wouldn't say it's a, like, how can you even live with yourself? That's so fucking crazy. Like you said earlier, they were caged animals and they were treated like caged animals and... I guess, but... That's what, I guess, caged animals do when they're finally uncaged. Now that one snitch was dead, it was time for the execution squad to take care of the others in cell block 4. One inmate was quoted in the hate factory saying, The dude that sent me to the penitentiary for life, someone who's sitting there doing six months while I'm sitting here doing life, and I got a chance to get to that dude, you bet I'm gonna break my back to get to him. The guy they burned all to pieces with a cutting torch, well, he deserved that a hundred times more. Whoever did that ought to get a medal pinned on his chest. But hundreds of police outside the prison knew exactly where the rioters 
soldiers were headed. Inmates had taken radios from the hostage guards and were using them to communicate across the prison, and police were able to listen in and know they were using the torch to cut their way into cell block 4. They also knew that there was a back door and time to get inside the unit and evacuate all 96 inmates that were about to die. Their excuse for not doing so was that they did not have a key. Who was stopping the rioters? Yeah, but it would have saved 96 people from getting rape murdered to death. Right? Someone should have gotten another torch. Yeah. Exactly. That was also mentioned in the book that they had as much time to get a torch and burn through the bars and hopefully get the other people outside They literally time. laid the plan out for them. Like, we're going to go burn down this door. Oh, fuck. That's a good idea. Let's go burn down this other door and not yeah. let them in. And then we can shoot every single person that comes through that fucking door. Yeah, that was the pl- that, that was That's it. a good plan. That I mean, that, riot over. That was the ending. But, all right, continue, Katie. I guess it wasn't the ending. More than likely, they had a key, and they just didn't want to go inside. I can also see that. I wouldn't want to go in there either. But I would still try to help people. Somebody should have called, like, I know we've got some badasses around, you know? Like, someone call some badasses. They'll go in there. Walker, Texas Ranger. Arnold, someone. Something like that. Whatever. Yeah, there was a bunch of um, lawsuits and complaints against basically anyone they could sue because they didn't do anything to save their family members that were murdered, even though they went on a radio and said, we're going to burn our way into cell block four and kill all these guys. And the police were like, okay, well, police can't, like, can't I, do anything. I can't hear you. You're, yeah. you're breaking up. Could you repeat that? <laughs> Over. Not all of the men in cell block four died. Many were released. The black Muslims minister was the first to be let out, followed by any other black men in the unit. They left one man, Paulina Paul, but told the others not to mess with him. Paul was severely schizophrenic, and they assumed he would be safer locked in his cell than wandering the prison. The black Muslims then left cell block four, saying they wanted no part in what was about to happen inside. I feel like they were actually a little bit scared of uh, Paulina Paul. They were like, no, 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 leave that guy He stays in there. Yeah, we don't want him out here. Yeah. The Chicanos also let one of their leaders out, a man so violent he had raped his own wife with a hot curling iron. Jesus fucking Christ. What is wrong with these people? He became one of the leaders of the execution squad. Others were let out by pure luck when they caught the attention of a rioter who did not recognize them and opened their cell. All but 12 men escaped the unit before the killing began. So there were still 12 men left in unit four, or cell block four? Mm-hmm. Locked in their cells. What was the point if they were basically going to let everybody else? They were only trying to get these 12 guys or they were trying to... I mean, a lot of them, like I said, pure luck. They just, someone passed by them and they were like, hey, buddy, like, just get me out of here. I want to take part in what's about to happen. And they didn't recognize them as being a snitch or someone that the gang was against. Okay. And so they would be like, okay, sure, whatever, and let them out. Those dudes lived with their head in the sand because, like, everyone's trying to get into this one cell block to kill these people and you just go let them out. Like, oh, yeah, sure, buddy, come on. (laughs) Some men had paint thinner or gasoline thrown into their cells with a lit match, burning them to death. Ooh, that's how they did it in uh, Breaking Bad. Remember when they killed one of the dudes in the, Mm -hmm. when Walter White killed all the the guys? Oh, yeah. That's probably a fairly common way to kill someone in prison. Others, those accused of worse crimes, suffered immensely. One man was held down while other inmates hammered a metal rod through his skull. They did not stop until the pipe went completely through the other side. Is it likely that that probably killed him pretty well before it got through his head, though, at least? Probably. I mean, it's still, you have to have it hammered through your skull and hit your brain before (sighs) you die. That's gnarly as fuck. Another man got lucky and only owed a gambling debt to the Aryans. Instead of killing him, they cut him a deal. Kill the man in the cell next to you and go free. Unfortunately, the man locked up next to him was Paulina Paul, who was serving time for shoplifting. The man rushed into Paul's cell and stabbed him in the stomach with a butcher knife. When Paul stumbled out of his cell, the Aryan leader grabbed him by the hair and pushed him to the floor. 
While four men held him down, Paulina Paul's head was slowly sawed off with a knife until he was completely decapitated. It was left sitting next to his body, and eventually rioters picked it up and put it on the end of a stick, parading around cell block four with it. Uncivilized, barbaric insanity. Like, that's the type of shit you see from, like, some tribe that's never been reached by civilization. I don't even think it's something that, like, a tribe would do. That's something that a fucking monster would do. Like, that's not a normal human activity in any sense. I even believe that among tribes that have never had contact with other humans, like, that doesn't seem like a normal thing to do at all. It doesn't well, I'm only going off movies I've seen. Yeah. You know, they stick heads on spears. They did have the decency to put it back with his body when they were done, but Paul's final resting place would be outside of the prison, laid with his head between his legs as a threat to the officers on the other side of the fence. That is fucked up. Yeah. Another man in cell block 4 was killed not when he was beaten so badly he passed out, but when his unconscious body was thrown over the railing onto the floor below. They did that in Breaking Bad too. They took Breaking Bad straight out of this. It's it's probably because it's New Mexico. They probably read this book and was like, oh, this will engage with people. So That's gotta be. That's gotta be it. Another had his head bashed into a wall, and his throat slit so violently he was almost decapitated. His genitals were cut off, shoved into his mouth, and his body hung by a noose over the railing. They left that part out of Breaking Bad. He was in cell block four for filing a lawsuit against seven men who had gang-raped him. Were those guards? Or were no, those prisoners. According to the Hate Factory, some rioters had gone to cell block five, which was under renovation, and found more acetylene torches. Two men were killed with them, one of those having the torch held to his eyes until the pressure buildup caused his head to literally explode. That is absolutely gnarly. Yeah, that's pretty fucked up. Because I put an acetylene torch onto a piece of, like, inch-thick metal till it gets red hot, and you can hear it hissing, like, any moisture in it. It's uh, crazy. Yeah. That's disgusting. <laughs> his death was witnessed by a police outside the prison who were able to see through the windows with binoculars. Wait a minute. They, they can see... With binoculars, but they don't just take some of these dudes out with a sniper rifle or something? They had hostages inside, mm-hmm. and if oh. you start taking out inmates, they start taking out your... Right, guns. right, right, okay. Alright, that makes sense, okay. James Perrin was saved to be the last man to die. He was in the protection unit because he was convicted of raping and killing two young girls and their mother. In prison, even snitches rank higher than the men who commit crimes against children, which is why Perrin was left to listen to 11 men die, knowing that his turn would eventually come. That that is fucking, like, just maniacal as fuck. Just every cell, you're fucking, like, I'm next. And then it just keeps going and going until they finally get to you. That's really fucked up. But fuck this guy, too. Fuck, yeah, fuck this guy. But it's not even like you hear one shot, like, like they go in and shoot a guy and go in and shoot the... No. (laughs) They're taking their time. You're hearing people get tortured. You're hearing heads explode from the eyeballs. Oh, my God. Fuck. By the time the execution squad was burning through his cell door, he was in a completely catatonic state. He was drug out and tied spread eagle before the acetylene torch was used to melt his genitals, face, and entire body. The rioters used smelling salts to keep him awake until he finally died. Cell Block 4 was one of the most gruesome crime scenes ever witnessed by any police officer who entered the prison once the riot was over. The smell of burning flesh never went away. The walls, floors, every surface was covered in blood and flesh. Mutilated bodies were everywhere, some of them not all in one place. Cell Block 4 showed exactly how depraved humans can be when they are already violent and locked into cages and kept isolated, starved, and beaten into submission. The riot had only begun roughly seven hours before and would continue for another 24. This is the first seven hours of the riot. They did all of this shit. Yeah, this was around like 8 or 9 a.m. and it started around 1.30. Jesus Christ. The brutality did not stop outside cell block 4. 
James Foley, 20, was not in the protection unit at the time of the riot, but had been held there before. A group of eight men found him sitting on his bunk, trying to avoid the madness around him. When they recognized him as someone who had been in cell block 4, they forced him to undress completely, then tied him in a fetal position. He was then raped by each man, while the other seven beat him with bats and kicked him until he died. The eight men then went through and raped the other men hiding out in the unit, but did not kill them. Why did they not kill them? I don't think they intentionally killed him. I think they just were beating him and he happened to die. Later in the riot, one of the men in the group had his throat slit but did not die. In total, based on information from those who witnessed the riot, only 25 men participated in any killing. 33 men lost their lives and over 100 were injured. By the end of the riot, inmates were so fucked up on drugs, sleep deprivation, and adrenaline that they were beating each other for no reason at all. Many of the injuries were also from drug overdoses due due to the potent Thorazine, Oxy, Xanax, and dozens of other medications being handed out in shoeboxes. As inmates were taken back into police custody post-riot, many of them were found with literal handfuls of assorted pills in their pockets. Negotiations had begun early into the riot, but picked up in intensity by Saturday afternoon. Inmates provided their first list of written demands by 8 a.m., which were largely ignored by officers. The inmates inside the prison knew that their hostages were vital in getting what they wanted, as the officers outside were only concerned with their safety. By the afternoon, hundreds of inmates were fighting through the riot and getting out of the prison, the first being from E1, who likely used the wrench Joe Madrid lost his life over to break the window. Those that were severely injured were carried out by rioters, who left them at the fence to be taken to hospitals. So at some point they went from, like, rioting and destroying and everything to carrying out the injured and, what, picking up the jail and trying to start their negotiations or what what was not not every person in there was an animal right like no there was like a small group probably not a small group it was probably in the hundreds but there was a group that were like doing the beatings and the killing and then there was probably most of the population of the prison not basically just saying fuck you i'm gonna destroy the prison but not fuck you i'm gonna kill anyone that i see so you were allowed to not kill but you weren't you weren't allowed to not riot Basically. Yeah, so as long as you're doing something that's... Pulling pipes out of the ground, lighting shit on fire, smashing walls. As long as you're doing something, I guess, you're not, you know, a target. I I feel like there's a weird prison rule where when it comes between uh, inmates and guards or inmates and the prison itself, you have to be with the inmates or you're against them. Exactly, yeah. There was, I mean, there was a a couple inmates that did find guards and basically keep them safe. They knew where to hide out in the prison better than the guards did, so they would hide them somewhere. And, I mean, out of the probably eight, nine hundred people riding, there was probably only a hundred or two hundred that were actually doing brutal, depraved things. The others were just Just lighting fires. Yeah, they're they're still people. Like, they're just in an extreme, like, situation. So, like, if you're a a thief or you're a, a robber who doesn't really murder people or you're in there for drugs, you're not really that angry at the system you're kind of like oh shit I'm, I'm still not a murderer no matter what you do i'm still not a rapist no matter what you do it's just like people who if there were the purge would probably not, still not go killing people exactly because mm-hmm. now you can but you don't necessarily want yeah, it, to it's not in there it's not part of who you are there was so many overdoses that we can assume that probably oh. a couple hundred people got really fucked up and couldn't participate at all. Yeah, like they're just drugged out. And that was their goal, is to get drugs. I'm a drug addict outside of prison. I haven't had it in this long, and now it's readily available and whatever I want. So I'm just going to get as fucked up as possible. Yeah. Did they do autopsies on those people, or did they just assume the people who weren't, like, beaten to death were overdoses? I mean, there's there's different things that signify an overdose like blue face or choked on vomit things like that or you know it's not all violent death when you drive a 
die of a drug overdose. So I'm sure there are people that they pulled out that were like, obviously, this person didn't die a violent death. They died of something. So in, in this situation, if you died at someone else's hands, it was obvious just from, I mean, there was more people beaten to death than people that were mutilated as badly as they were in cell block four. So they didn't do, I mean, they, they didn't go around taking the acetylene torch to everyone's face. They just beat the shit out of them with pipes until they were like, oh, fuck, I think he's dead. Okay. Well, the weird thing that I'm getting at in a big roundabout way is that there wasn't like a situation where people were like, get all fucked up and passed out from drugs and then people would rape them and fucking beat them or no i mean that's probably like saved for a special group of people like like i don't mean to sound like that but if you're just a if you're a big powerhouse guy in prison and you pass out not everyone's gonna be like oh yeah let's go rape big old john over there no it's gonna be let's go find these weak motherfuckers that we feel like taking it was that and it was also in prison the smallest problems can make you have like a huge issue with somebody so a lot of the people that partook in the beatings or the killings sought out who they beat and who they killed because they had wronged them in some way shape or form yeah it's not just willy-nilly stabby stabby hurdy hurdy it's more like oh we are going to get these people Okay. At some point, there was a couple people that I'm sure were beaten because, like, it, I one I read one story where one guy bumped into another guy and he beat the shit out of him for it. But that's just prison politics, too. But that's, though, yeah, that's the same thing. If you bumped into someone in the dormitory, you'd get the shit beaten out beaten out of you because you bumped into him. That's just how yeah. shit works. You have to make yourself look tough to survive. Dr. Orner, the hated prison psychologist, claimed in the BBC documentary that the inmates' first demands were for pool tables and pizza. Every other source says that they had a more legitimate list of demands, including reduce overcrowding, not prosecute inmates involved in the riot, and to have reporters allowed inside the prison, not just during the riot, but at any time to show the public what life inside was like for them. Do you think that Dr. Orner was quoted as saying that because that was like the... Like they were like, what do we want? And some asshole was just like, pool tables and pizza. I think he probably said that to make them look more like animals than they were. You don't want them to look good in any light. And if they're like, well, the prison's overcrowded. We're getting beaten and raped by guards. The, oh, that makes sense. This is unacceptable ways to keep humans. No, they didn't want to bring light. Yeah. They didn't want to bring light to that. Yeah. He's t- towing the company line, sounds like to me. Yeah. From, from everything that I read too, Dr. Orner is a piece of shit. So. And should not be a psychologist and should not be treating inmates. He was one of the people that went into the business to have power over people, like a lot of COs do, because they want to uh, yes. have that power over somebody. He had that power to say, oh, you're not crazy. I'm going to keep you in prison and not a mental institution, and I'm not going to give you your antipsychotics so you suffer at the hands of other inmates. I see. This okay. power trip thing was going around the prison, it seems, with pretty much everyone in control. It, it I mean... It never has stopped. Prison is... In I don't want to malign our CO listeners. No, I mean, I'm not aligning CO listeners, but prison in itself is a weird power structure, and that's all that it is. Like, there are people there that have certain types of power, there are people there that have nothing, and it's that's just the way it is. It's not, it's always going to be inherently there when you have a group of people that are basically segregated from society and watch 24-7 to make sure that they stay segregated from society. And at a certain point as a CEO, you have to seek out that power over people because you want them to respect you. Otherwise, I mean, you put your own life at risk 
That's why you hit them with the billy club. Well, what was the what was that the Stanford Prison Experiment or wherever where mm-hmm. they uh, divided two groups of people up into inmates and COs and then tested like cruelty responses to things and for the most part the people that believed that they had power were the much crueler group of people. Like it didn't matter if they were um, powerful people among the inmates or powerful people among the COs, right? Yeah, it was. They just went wild because they yeah. knew that they could do whatever they wanted. As basically, you, yeah. As soon as they figured out they could, what they could get away with, they did that. They had to power end it. corrupts. Yeah, they had to end it after like what three days? I yeah, think and it was it, supposed to be two weeks. <laughs> yeah, because it got so fucking brutal. Their wish for a reporter was granted at midnight Saturday when a reporter went alone straight into the rioting prison. He was inside for forty minutes and said he did not feel threatened at any point. The footage was aired to the public, but no longer exists. Oh, oh that's no a way. bummer. What I happened? would love to see that. I think it was probably a live airing and no one recorded it. Ah, that sucks because that, I would love to have seen that. Yeah. I would love to know who that badass, ballsy motherfucking journalist is. They were supposed to send a group in, I guess, and when they got there, the inmates, like, had done something and the police outside were like, no, 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 never mind, you're not going inside. And this one dude showed up late. He came jogging (laughs) up and he was like, hey, are we still going in? And they were like, fuck it. I mean, yeah, I guess if you want to, go for it. Oh my God. By 8 a.m. Sunday, over 800 inmates had escaped the prison, and eight of the ten hostages had either been brought out for medical treatment or snuck out by escaping inmates. That afternoon, the last two guards were brought out, and only 125 men remained inside the prison. Those were the the shits? The real hardcore dudes and the gang leaders and shit? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. The go-ahead was given for SWAT and the National Guard to raid the prison and remove the inmate. Inside, they were shocked by the conditions. The entire first floor had up to a foot of standing water from broken pipes. Offices, psychology unit, Protestant chapel, and gymnasium had been set on fire, the one in the gym to burn a pile of bodies. Ooh, that's gnarly as fuck. Where it wasn't flooded, there was blood, and mutilated bodies lay on the floor or were hung from railings and basketball hoops. It took until March 6 to compile a complete list of those alive and dead, leaving families completely in the dark about their loved ones. Figuring out what to do with all the inmates post-riot was the most difficult task. When they first started escaping, they were interrogated to find out who was to be charged with murder and then taken to nearby prisons. But as hundreds of men began filing out, there was nowhere to take them. Many were left sitting outside for three days, locked between the perimeter fences with no shelter and hardly enough blankets for all of them. It was here revenge began against those who did not participate. Wait, this is where the revenge starts? I thought they were already doing this. Well, this is post-riot now. Oh my god, it never ends. You didn't do anything in there, so fuck you. Jesus. Alright, well, let's, let's hear what this bullshit's about to be. By Monday morning, 15 inmates had to be taken to the hospital for injuries received during their first night outside. By February 7th, 496 inmates had been moved back into the parts of the prison that were least damaged, and 470 were transferred to outside prisons. Almost no inmates were charged with the 33 murders that occurred during the riot. The longest sentence to be handed down was nine years. By the end of the 90-day deadline, 412 lawsuits had been filed against the New Mexico DOC, many by inmates and some by families of those that were killed. Yeah, can you imagine the fallout from families in this situation when especially for the people who were there for petty offenses and stuff oh yeah you're there because you stole a car and you just happened to be in the wrong unit like or they forced you into the wrong unit i mean this whole situation is fucked beyond compare this is just the most brutal thing i've ever heard prisoners are fucked Eventually, all the inmates were moved out of the prison and only the infirmary was used. In 1998, it was shut down completely. It is still in use, though, most notably as a set of the movie The Longest Yard in 2004. No way, really? Yeah. They use it as a prison, or as a movie set for a lot of movies, because they rent it out so cheap. 
Can people go there? The New Mexico Department of Corrections regularly holds tours of the prison, hoping to raise enough money to make it into a museum. Its largest draw is the claim that it is extremely haunted, with claims that it was haunted even before the riot occurred. The only good to come out of the riot was a massive increase in prison budget. Many of those held at the penitentiary after the riot complained that conditions got worse as the guards and warden wanted revenge for what they had done. Some of the inmates transferred to other prisons found that conditions there were even worse than they were in New Mexico. None of the ten guards held as hostages returned to work, and most still refused to this day to discuss what happened in those 36 hours. Larry Mendoza, one of those hostages, took part in the BBC documentary and was still visibly affected by what he saw during the riot, even breaking down in tears at one point. 33 lost their lives at the hands of their fellow inmates, and hundreds of others had their lives irreversibly destroyed by what they witnessed 40 years ago. And is that it for the New Mexico prison riot? Mm-hmm. God damn, that was brutal. I'm actually glad that this story is ending because yeah. it just seemed like it was never going to stop with the brutality. So they didn't even change any laws on the way that prisoners are handled or treated or at that time laws least, for the or... prisoner prison industry or anything like that after this, right? Um, they kind of I think they kept the the Duran consent going, and so feds were still able to monitor prisons instead of just the states being in charge of it. But besides that, no, nothing really changed. Man, that's crazy. It wasn't until, I think, relatively recently, and that's why the DOC wants to make it a museum, because they want to be like, this can never happen again. Yeah, these are the conditions that pushed this to happen, and we need to never see that again. That makes sense. Yeah, you can go. I mean, there's still burn marks in the floors where people were killed with the acetylene torch, and there's hatchet marks. I really want to go here. I want to go there, too, actually. I'm not going to lie. Because those who forget history are condemned to repeat it. Yeah. Someone fancy said that. This is true. All right, guys. Well, uh, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, feel free to send us a message at fourcornerscrimecast at gmail.com. That's F-O-U-R cornerscrimecast at gmail.com. And you can follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash fourcornerscrimecast and on Instagram at fourcornerscrimecast. And as always, don't forget to give us a rate and review on Apple Podcasts and a follow on Spotify, um, as well as a shout out on any of your other formats that you might get your podcasts. And just... Always remember, prison sucks. Yeah, don't go to prison. Yeah. And if you do, don't riot. Or do. I don't know. That's a 50-50 loaded (laughs) question. Like, you don't riot, you're going to get hurt. If you do riot, you're going to get hurt. So Do your time and get out. Yeah, uh, my recommendation on that is if you ever are in the situation, um, kind of play it by ear. Well, but you can't really sit around and wait (laughs) to see what happens. Just, uh, you know, you know what's best. I think we are fortunately past prison riots. Especially like this, because oh, knock um, on wood. our guards know to lock doors now. Yeah, that's a good Which one. is really important. They're um, all electronic locks for the most yeah. part, too. Yeah, so. you can't forget to lock them now. But yeah, this was the deadliest prison riot in all of U.S. history. Whew, some fucked up shit. Hope you guys uh, enjoyed it, I guess. Yeah, there's a lot of information there. But uh, all right, guys. Yeah, we'll see you next week. See ya. Adios, motherfuckers.